Good morning. We're glad you are joining us today on this Memorial Weekend Sunday. Uh, today, hopefully, our church is outside, gathered together for our outdoor service, which is going to be followed up with a picnic. Um, however, we know that this weekend we have a lot of members, a lot of families traveling, and so uh, we're glad that you're joining us online, whether you're in your car, maybe you're at home, or you're in a hotel somewhere. Uh, we're just glad that you're taking the time to uh, gather with us, worship with us this morning. So uh, grab your Bibles. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 7, uh, looking at verses 26 through through 28. Uh, so thinking about this idea of traveling, uh, whenever my wife and I travel places, I like to play this game in the car uh, where uh, we drive by a rundown hotel and then I ask her, would you rather stay there or some other rundown hotel. Now, most of the time, my wife doesn't answer because uh, she's not going to stay there no matter what. Uh, but there are a few times where she might say, you know what, if I had to stay there, we would. Uh, and the goal is to kind of find what's the worst hotel uh, out there that we would not stay at. Uh, now, imagine if I ask her that question and we drive by this rundown hotel and I say, would you rather stay there or would you rather go to Hawaii and stay in a five-star resort in a hotel uh, that overlooks the ocean? Uh, my wife isn't even going to acknowledge the question. Why? Because one hotel isn't nice, and the other hotel is incomparable in its niceness. Uh, we've been working through Hebrews all year long, looking at how Jesus is better. Uh, we've seen how Jesus is better than the angels, how he's better than Moses, how he's better than the promised land. Uh, and then we've been looking at how Jesus is better than the high priest. And once we get to chapter 8, we'll look at how Jesus' sacrifice is better than any sacrifice the high priest could offer. And hopefully at this point, you have recognized that uh, Jesus isn't just better, uh, Jesus is the best. And so what I want to do this morning, uh, looking in Hebrews chapter 7, is to look at Jesus' bestness. Now, I know I probably made that word up, but when we think about Jesus in all his glory, uh, he's not comparable to anything else out there. Uh, so the main idea of our text this morning, what I hope you get once we finish, is that uh, Jesus is better than the high priest uh, because he's perfect in his essence, in his existence, and his effect. Jesus is perfect in the, or better than the high priest because he's perfect in his essence, his existence, and his effect. Uh, so looking at Hebrews chapter 7, let's read verses 26 through 28. The author writes, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Uh, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Uh, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of, of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Uh, the first truth I want us to look at this morning is Jesus's perfect essence. Jesus's perfect essence. Now, we know that the word better, it's a superlative. It compares one thing to another to the highest or the lowest degree of quality. And so I've already said that in this passage, we see that Jesus isn't just better. Jesus is the best. 
And so the text tells us then that because he's the best, it is fitting. And now, what the author is going to want us to understand is that, uh, the, that, that Jesus isn't just fitting in his being, but he's going to be fitting in his behavior. In other words, he's going to show us not just that Jesus is perfect in who he is, but, but help us see how Jesus becomes perfect. And so we see three characteristics in this passage. And the first one that we see of Jesus is that that Jesus is holy. Now that word holy, it means set apart. And when we read it in the Bible, it always has a positive connotation. uh, That Jesus is set apart, that God is set apart, that he is better than anything else. Um, The word holy, it's not just a characteristic of God, but it is a summary of the characteristics of who God is. That uh, in God's love, in God's grace, in God's mercy, even in God's justice and his wrath, um, he is holy. He is different than anything else out there. Now, when the Bible calls us to be holy, it's not telling us to be God, but rather to be imitators of God, to seek God. Uh, Because there are some things that you and I can't do that God can do. Uh, While we can love God with our mind and to think in godly ways, uh, you and I don't have the capability of being omnipotent, that, that we are limited in our knowledge no matter how much we pursue the Lord. And so when we think about Jesus in this text being holy, on the one hand, he is holy in who he is, that he seeks or, or that he is God, that he follows God. And then second, he is holy in the way he pursues the Lord. Uh, the second characteristic we see in our passage is that uh, Jesus is innocent. Uh, he's unstained or blameless. This word speaks to Jesus's moral integrity, uh, that Jesus is the same on the outside as he is on the inside. Now imagine this morning I brought up a 10-day-old baby, Um, and let's say I say to you that this 10-day-old baby has never told a lie. Uh, Most of us, if not all of us, we wouldn't be surprised, right? Like, we would not be shocked that this baby, in its 10-day-old life, has never faced the temptation to tell a lie. Now, imagine if I told you that I have never told a lie, which I have. Uh, You wouldn't believe that, right? Like, if I try to come to you and I try to say to you that I've never told a lie ever, you wouldn't believe that for a second. But what if it was true? What if I had really never told a lie? If I was able to convince you of that truth, you'd be amazed that in my life, young for some people, old if you ask any of the students, um, in my life you would be surprised that I had never told a lie. Uh, right now, right now in my life, I'm at the same age as Jesus was whenever uh, he went through his ministry on earth. And when we think about the idea that Jesus never told a lie, um, for some of us, or if not all of us, it should amaze us. Uh, that Jesus went through his whole life not saying a single lie, but in fact, not only did Jesus never lie, uh, Jesus never committed any sort of sin. See, Jesus is blameless in absolutely everything that he has done. And listen, the, 
The issue isn't that we haven't found Jesus in sin, right? It's not like there's some other book or some other gospel or some other something that's going to give us further evidence of who Jesus really is. Uh, Right now, if you were to turn the TV on on most um, popular networks, uh, you would probably find some TV show relating to a crime show. Uh, my wife and I, we enjoy watching crime shows, and like most people, hopefully all of us, we, we enjoy watching the bad guy get caught. Uh, however, sometimes the bad guy gets set free, whether it's a loophole in the, the, the system or uh, a witness uh, is, passes away or uh, some legal issue, for some reason the bad guy is going to get set free. And although we have all the evidence we need on the couch, for some reason on the TV, they say this guy is actually innocent. That's not the issue with Jesus. That Jesus isn't someone who we don't have enough evidence to know that he is guilty. We know for sure that Jesus has never sinned once, that he has the integrity, that he's always been the same person, that who he is on the outside is who he is on the inside. And then the third characteristic that we see is that Jesus is, is unstained or he is pure. Uh, that word pure, it often refers to sexual purity, but it can also be a general term referring to all purity. Um, and it's a great description of who Jesus is. Uh, that nothing about his life is stained with sin. There's not even a blemish, not a mark of sin in Jesus' life. And he loves that. Maybe as a kid you thought about what life would be like if you were someone else's child. Now, we probably hate to admit that, but most likely uh, you had a thought at some point of what life would have been like if you would have grown up with no siblings or more siblings, what life would have looked like uh, had you had a different set of parents if you grew up in a different state, a different country, uh, maybe with a different financial background. Uh, the reason we think about that stuff sometimes is because we want to do things that our current life and current situation doesn't allow us to do. And often it's sinful stuff, um, specifically relating to parents. If you thought about what life would be like with a different set of parents, uh, you think that because in your mind, if you had someone else's parents, then you could behave a, dirt, a different way. That because these parents let their kids do something, you think if you could just be their kid, you could do those things. See, Jesus, never once did he want to be someone else's son. That Jesus delights in being the Father's son. He delights in obeying his commands. He doesn't want a different life. So Jesus here is holy, he is innocent, and then he is unstained or he is pure. But that speaks to Jesus' essence. But then we take another step and we see it also speaks to his existence. So the second truth we see this morning is, is Jesus' perfect existence. So going back again to verse 26, the author says it was indeed fitting. Uh, what the author wants us to see in these passages is he wants us to understand that Jesus isn't just fitting, but he became fitting. If you go to verse 28, uh, look what the author says. 
Uh, in the latter half of the verse, he says, uh, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, uh, Todd has mentioned this verse in earlier chapters of Hebrews, but because the author mentions it again, we should mention it again. Uh, the issue here isn't that Jesus is imperfect in character, but the issue is that prior to Jesus' life, he's imperfect in experience. Now, that may make us kind of feel uncomfortable for a second, calling Jesus imperfect. Uh, but what the author of Hebrews wants us to see is that the life of Jesus matters. That it's important that Jesus didn't just be born of a virgin and then a few days later die for our sins and then raise from the dead. That Jesus actually living was necessary. So going back to these three characteristics that we've looked at, that he's holy, that he's innocent, that he's unstained, what we understand and what we see is that in every single one of these characteristics, Jesus was challenged. That Satan went to Jesus and tried to tempt Jesus not to be holy, not to seek after God. He tempted Jesus not to have a moral integrity. That he's telling Jesus that here we're on this mountain, we're in the wilderness, and he's tempting him where no one is going to see what Jesus does. That Jesus in the wilderness, that if he sins, that no one is watching Jesus and seeing these sins, but Jesus upholds that moral integrity. That Jesus loves the Father's commands. He is pure in his intentions to seek after the Lord. And so Jesus isn't someone who's never been challenged, but he's faced the temptations. And as Hebrews 4 says, that he, sympath he sympathizes with our weaknesses. He understands you and the struggles that you have. And not just the struggles that we are comfortable to talk about in church, um, but he struggles with the ones that we want to keep silent. He understands being faced with that temptation, but never once does Jesus ever give in. And he's a much better priest than any of us in this room or on this screen. Much better. Why? Because the Bible calls us priests. And it's not that we offer sacrifices on behalf of each other, but we do go before the Lord in prayer, that in our conduct and in our community with each other, uh, we do seek to encourage and to build one another up. Uh, however, we are limited in our ability to sympathize, that none of us are able to fully know all of us or just fully know some of us. Uh, that whether it's a, someone on the pastoral staff or a small group leader, a Sunday school teacher, or uh, just a friend or family member who uh, follows the Lord, that we aren't very good priests in that we understand the struggles of other people. But Jesus here is this perfect priest who understands us but also knows the extent of the struggle, the extent of the temptation, because never once did Jesus actually give in. So that kind of raises three questions I want us to answer. Uh, the first one is, how is it able that, that Jesus in his divinity, uh, how can he also be fully human? Like, how do those two truths, God, that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, how do those work together? Well, let me give you three terms um, that kind of describe what Jesus wasn't that I think can help us then understand who Jesus is. And so the, the first one is what we call 
Apollinarianism. Now I'm always told if you say it with confidence then they're gonna believe that you pronounce it right. So let's say I did pronounce it right. Um, but that view teaches that uh, while Jesus had a human body, uh, he had a divine spirit or a divine mind. But what that view teaches is that Jesus wasn't 100% God and 100% man. Rather, it teaches that he was 50% God and 50% man. But we see in scripture that that is not the case. Uh, the second view that people have had in the past is Nestorianism, uh, which that view teaches that while Jesus had one body, within, within him existed two persons. There was a divine person and there was a human person. And so what proponents of this view would say is that uh, while Jesus was on the boat when the storm came and in the gospels, that it was his human side asleep but when Jesus calmed the storm, uh, it was his divine person calming that storm. But what we get again in the Bible is that uh, Jesus doesn't have these two persons, that Jesus isn't a they, he is a he. And there's a singular person, 100% God, 100% man. Then there's a third view that we have, and it's called monophysitism, which basically says that this deity in Jesus, the divinity in Jesus, and the humanity in Jesus comes together and creates a new essence. Uh, think about having a cup of water and then some ink, and you mix the two together. Uh, you no longer have pure ink and pure water, but it's created something different. Uh, but what we see in the scriptures is that at no point does Jesus create this new essence. Um, but he is 100% God and 100% man at all times. And so how do we reject those three views and then come to an understanding of Jesus's character? It's, it's that he's one person, and within him it's God and man. And in every decision, every thought, every action, every, every saying of Jesus, it is the divinity of Jesus speaking as well as the humanity of Jesus speaking, doing, and thinking. So it leads us then to a second question, could Jesus sin? And we've addressed this in this series, and the, the, the answer to that question is, is no, that God cannot sin, so the divinity of Jesus uh, disables Jesus from being able to sin. So it then leads to a third question, and it is, then how is this good news for me? Because I can sin, you can sin. And so how is Jesus' sinlessness good news for me in the midst of my struggle and my temptation? Well, let me illustrate it this way. Let's say we have a swimmer trying to set a world record going across a body of water, whether that's a lake or a sea. Um, while that swimmer is traveling or swimming across the water, uh, she has a boat that's going to go alongside her. And if at any point they think the swimmer is going to begin to drown, then those in the boat will reach down and grab her to safety. So as that boat goes alongside her, uh, let's say she reaches the other side. So she succeeds in her mission to swim from one side to the other. We would ask the question, could have the swimmer drowned? And the answer to that question is no, because the boat was alongside her the whole time. But then we ask, why did the swimmer not drown? And it's because she swam from one side to the other. So the answer 
to could Jesus sin and how is it good, no, good news is could Jesus sin? No, because he's God. But why did Jesus not sin? Why was he unable to sin? Why did, why did he never sin? It's because in Jesus' life, he lived in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Uh, whether we look in Luke chapter 4, Matthew chapter 12, or uh, Acts chapter 10, what we see that in all throughout Jesus' life, he is living in dependence upon the Father through the Holy Spirit. And so what Jesus is doing is he's, he's allowing the Holy Spirit to lead him and to, to, to guide him so that he is walking in obedience to the Lord. Uh, that in the wilderness facing temptation, he is depending and trusting upon the Holy Spirit. So how is this good news? So let me give you two applications. Well, well one, um, it's that my sinless identity is based in Christ's sinless identity. Therefore, I don't need to give God these filthy good works to make him happy with me. Um, that who I am is found in Jesus. So when I put my faith in Jesus, I receive his righteousness. Growing up, I was uh, taught as an illustration uh, that every sin I committed, God wrote those sins on a whiteboard. So imagine this whiteboard behind me, and, and uh, the idea is that every time we'd sin, God would take his marker and he would write the sins that we have committed on that whiteboard. Um, but then the day I put my faith in Jesus, God took his eraser and he erased every sin that I committed. Then after that moment that when I still sinned, God would write the sin down, look over to his son, see the blamelessness of his son, the sinlessness of his son, and then he would erase my sin, giving me a clean slate. And while that illustration is good, it's not good enough. Because God isn't simply giving us a clean slate. So let's say God has a whiteboard and God is writing my sin on that whiteboard. But what, what, what he's doing is when he looks at his son, he's not simply erasing my sin, but then he's writing all the ways that Jesus obeyed. So those moments where I disobeyed and disrespected my parents— what God did is he erased my sin and then he wrote down on that board and permanent marker how Jesus always obeyed his parents. Uh, that the time in high school where I accidentally, and I want to emphasize that because it was an accident, I accidentally lied to a cop to get out of a ticket, forgot that I did put my seatbelt on, but we can explain that later. Um, I lied to the cop about a ticket. You know what God did in that moment? that God erased my sin and then wrote down how Jesus always obeyed the authority when it was right to do so. That my righteousness is in Jesus. And so that means that my, not only is my identity in Jesus, but so is my reputation. That I don't have to come to church. I don't have to obey God's commands. I don't have to share the gospel as if I'm trying to earn God's favor. I'm doing those things because that's the way God sees me as someone who obeys, as someone who shares my faith, as someone who is a part of the family of God. That my actions are, are a response to what God has done in my life. But the second application to this is that Jesus then gives me this model of obedience that is hope for me, right? Like if Jesus and everything he does is dependent upon 
himself always, then it's discouragement because I am not God. But then if I look at Jesus and I see Jesus is dependent upon the Holy Spirit, then I have confidence that I can behold and focus on Jesus and then imitate him. That the same spirit who is a helper for Jesus is the same spirit who's a helper for me. And so there's confidence in my journey. And so I mentioned the word behold, and that's what we have to begin to do. That so often we're so focused on behavior. Uh, one, one theme in my life of, of something that I've been taught that really guides and directs a lot of my study and a lot of my thinking um, is the importance of beholding the Lord. Right now I'm working through a book with our student ministry interns, and um, we recently read a chapter talking about beholding Jesus. In, in John chapter 1, John the Baptist is talking to the, uh, the disciples before they're Jesus' disciples, and he says to them, Behold, um, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And that word behold, you know what he's doing? He, he's not telling the disciples to go to this one and ask this one how they can make themselves right. He's, John the Baptist is saying, Look upon this person. And fix your attention on this person. And then as you focus on him and gaze upon him, everything else is going to fall into place. Too often, church, we come to this moment, we come to our Bible study, we come to whatever spiritual experience looking for what we can do when what we need to begin with is just beholding God. And I wonder if maybe that's why sometimes we struggle in the singing moment of church, right? Because it's not much of us doing and more of us just beholding. But it's that time of worship through song that we are able to, able to just fix our attention on the character and the essence and the existence of Jesus Christ. And, and so these two truths, essence and existence, lead to this third truth about Jesus' perfect effect. So again, in verse 26, uh, he says that Jesus is separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Um, that phrase is what we would call a hendiades, a two in one. Um, on a warm day, you may walk outside and you may say, man, the, the, the heat and the sun, they're, they're hot today. Uh, when you make that statement, it's for emphasis because uh, in that sentence, the heat and the sun, they're the same thing. So what's going on here is the separator from sinners doesn't speak to Jesus' sinlessness, although Jesus is sinless, as we've stated, but it speaks to the result of Jesus being sinless. Because Jesus obeyed the Father, he is now exalted in heaven, and in heaven he is separated from sin. And so what happens is because of Jesus' life, he is able to secure our salvation and he is able to be exalted in heaven as the savior of the world. And so that's good news for us. It's good news, one, in that we have someone worthy of worship. Uh, now, in verse 27, I'm gonna let our pastor, because of what's coming in the following chapters, talk about 
the type of sacrifice that Jesus offered of himself compared to the sacrifices that the high priest would, would, would offer. Uh, but what I want us to see is that Jesus himself, unlike the high priest, never had to offer a sacrifice for himself. That he was pure, he was sinless in himself. And he's good enough. And so what that means is when we come before Jesus and we worship him, we're worshiping, worshiping him as one who is the best, one who is worthy of all of our worship. But then second, what we have here is that because our identity and our reputation is found in Jesus, we also are, are going to be exalted in heaven. Now don't let that sound as if this is a people-focused point. Um, it's all about God, but God delights in exalting those who put their faith in him. So the context of Hebrews is what? Church. What's going on is the Hebrews are tempted to go back. And we've said this over and over and over again. And I know some of us listening this morning, we are tempted to go back. Maybe we have gone back. Back to old habits. Back to old shame. Back to, back to old thoughts. Because following Jesus is difficult, and at times it just doesn't seem worth it. But notice what the author of Hebrews is doing. They don't go back to these old ways of living that don't save you, that don't make you, um, that don't give you the purpose, that, that don't set you free from the sin that you want. But look forward to Jesus, knowing that just as Jesus is exalted in heaven, you also are going to be separated from sinners and be in heaven. That the shame that you're dealing with, the guilt you are dealing with, the sin you are giving into, that is not your identity, that is not your reputation, and one day you are going to be set free from that. And we can look at the essence and the existence of Jesus knowing that Jesus will make sure that the salvation we have in him exists forever. That just as the Son has been made perfect forever, we also will be made perfect forever. Holy, unstained, innocent. And so this morning, as you watch this, maybe you would say, man, I want this salvation. I want to behold God. I want to see and know in my heart that Jesus is the best and that I don't exist to live for myself. I don't exist to satisfy my desires, but I exist to praise and exalt Jesus Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords. If that's you this morning, uh, we'd love to have a conversation with you. Um, and so when we get done, uh, you can simply reach out to us on our social media page on Facebook or Instagram and, and just let us know your need. Let us know that your desire uh, to put your faith in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we, we come exalting your son. God, we, we don't deserve to have salvation. Um, God, we don't deserve to have hope. But Lord, you've given it to us through your son. You have secured it for us. God, your son who is holy, who is innocent, who is pure, has offered himself for us. And so God, for those of us who we've been trying 
to make ourselves right with you, those of us who are exhausted at making sure we do everything right. God, this morning, may you draw those who need to be drawn to you, to yourself, that God, this morning, they will come and put their faith in you, taking the righteousness that your son has, finding their identity now and their reputation now in your son so that they may live a life of exaltation in your son, praising him and worshiping him forever. God, you're good to us. We love you in your name. Amen.